This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 20,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good evening. Welcome. Welcome to RAND. Welcome to the RAND Pittsburgh office. My name is Catherine Augustine, and I'm the director of the office here. And on behalf of RAND, I welcome you all to what we call Conversations at RAND. And tonight's conversation is on our Truth Decay initiative. And that is one in which we chronicle the diminishing role of facts in American public life, which has led to, among other things, we argue, a decline in civil discourse, political paralysis, and other problems as well. And you are sitting here in one of our nine worldwide offices. And for those of you who are new to RAND, let me tell you just a a couple of facts. In May, we celebrated our 70th anniversary. And our mission is to improve policy and decision-making through objective analysis. We are nonpartisan and nonprofit, and we strictly adhere to that. And we are pleased to have with us one of the authors of our Truth Decay report. And we are also very appreciative of the local interest in that work. That work has also garnered significant national attention. It has been chronicled in over 80 media outlets, including CNBC, the Boston Globe, the LA Times, Politico, and NPR, and and others. Um, Both George Will and President Obama have encouraged us to read it, which I think is a good sign. And when When Obama put it on his summer reading list, it was downloaded over 6,000 times just in the month of June. So a lot of people are reading it, commenting on it, and we have an opportunity tonight to hear about it directly from one of the co-authors and ask questions of her as well. And it is my sincere hope that there are no dentists here in the audience who are hoping that they're hearing about a different topic. (laughs) Well, that was easy. Some of you uh, here in this office have been research partners of us and funders of our local work. Um, When we came to Pittsburgh 18 years ago, we were very excited about the future of this city, and we hoped that we could contribute to creating that future. And I'm pleased to say that, that we have, indeed. Each year, we focus on topics that are critical to this region. Now, for example, we have projects on infant mortality, workforce development, stormwater runoff, lead in the water, and others. Some of those have been topics of past conversations at RAND, and some will be topics in the future, so please stay tuned. And I thank all of you who've participated in that research or helped to fund it. And others of you here in this room are donors to RAND writ large, and that is very important to us. Your support allows us to tackle complex, large, and new problems that clients are not commissioning us to study. Truth Decay is a great example of that, as is our work on gun policy in America, um, the security risks we're likely to face in 20 years, and some new opioid research that we are about to launch. So thank you for your support. The majority of the conversation tonight will be on the relationship between Truth Decay and community engagement. And I'd like to say a little bit about the the two people who will be leading the conversation. Um, We have... 
with us this evening Jennifer Cavanaugh, who is a co-author of our report on Truth Decay with Michael Rich, and she is a political scientist here at RAND, and she's the associate director of a center in our FFRDC focused on the Army, which is called the Arroyo Center, and that center focuses on strategy, strategy doctrine, and resources, and she's also a professor in RAND's graduate school in Santa Monica. And we also have with us and are pleased to have with him, with us Pat Getty, who is the president and a trustee of the Claude Worthington Benedim Foundation. And he is an expert in community engagement. Hopefully you see in your program all of the organizations that he is associated with. And the Benedim Foundation supports initiatives in West Virginia and southwestern Pennsylvania in education and economic development and other areas of import in the region. And of note, Pat also served as a peer reviewer on the Truth Decay Report, so he is intimately familiar with it, and we thank him for that, as well as for being here tonight. Well, uh, Jennifer, what trends define Truth Decay, and please give us some examples. Well, we defined Truth Decay as comprising four specific trends. The first is increasing disagreement about objective facts. An example would be disagreement about the safety of vaccines or the safety of GMOs. The second is a blurring of the line between fact and opinion. You see that on cable news or social media, anywhere where fact and opinion are presented in an interchangeable way that makes it difficult to distinguish between the two. The third trend goes along with that, and that's an increasing relative volume of opinion compared to fact. Again, you see this pretty much every day. What we have is a, a tremendous increase in the amount of information that we have available to us, and a disproportionate amount of that information or that increase has been opinion. So even when you're looking for facts, it can be very difficult to find them because there is so much of commentary, opinion, analysis, and other types of information. And the final trend is declining trust in institutions, especially those that used to be looked to as, as sources of factual information. Uh, so the government and the media would be good examples. And we have good, good uh, data on trends in public attitudes towards these institutions. And we've seen a significant decline over the past 15 years. I thought it was very interesting in the book when you talked about the three prior episodes when the country has had similar issues. Um, my sense is your part of your future research is to try to better understand what's different about this time. But can you speak a little bit to what what distinguishes where we are now from where we've been the three prior periods that you described? So we looked at uh, three previous periods. We looked at the 1880s to 1890s, or the Gilded Age, the 1920s to 1930s, so the Great Depression, um, and and the recovery afterwards, um, and the 1960s to 1970s, so the Vietnam era leading up to Watergate. And what we found was that there's significant evidence of three of those trends, in, in each of those periods. And those are the final three that I mentioned. So blurring of the line between fact and opinion, increasing relative volume of opinion, and uh, the declining trust in institutions. So for example, in the 1880s to 1890s, you have the rise of yellow journalism, which is very similar to uh, some of what we see today in terms of sensationalized and exaggerated information used uh, to basically sell more newspapers that had an impact on public attitudes. Uh, you see in the 60s and 70s declining trust in the same institutions, government and the media, for many of the same reasons. Um, and at the same time, you have the role that television is playing. So again, you have this information 
angle. Um, so in each of these periods, we have these parallels. But what's different now is that first trend, that increasing disagreement about objective facts. And there have always been skeptics. So if you think about the vaccine debate, there have been people who have distrusted vaccines since they were first uh, first, they first came into being. But what we see now is a divergence between data and attitudes. So in areas where we have an increasing volume of information or evidence that supports an, uh, an interpretation or a fact, we have an increasing number of people who disagree with that. Um, and you can see that in vaccines and you can see it in GMOs. So in the early 2000s, about 21-22% of Americans thought GMOs were safe. Now we have more evidence that consuming them is safe. And in 2015, 57% of people said that GMOs were unsafe. So it's this divergence between evidence and data that we're seeing, and that's what seems to be distinct. Now, the question of why that difference exists, why are we seeing this now? Um, part of it is probably changes in the information system. Uh, the ability now to find almost anything you want on the internet, um, and the power that social media, the power that social media gives to people trying to spread disinformation, um, is very different than anything that we've seen before. Um, certainly radio and television gave people this power, but not on the same scale. Uh, in terms of providing access both to consume information and to be a source of information. Um, we also have different political dynamics now than we had in the past. Uh, the, pol the level of polarization that we have today, not just political, but also social and demographic, is much more severe than anything that we've seen before. Um, and we can measure that in different ways and, and see that in, um, in, in, the, in data in terms of both election returns and public attitudes and uh, the composition of um, state senate representation um, and so those are two things that seem different that um, probably contribute to the differences that we're seeing today. But you're right that this is an area that we're trying to investigate further. Uh, we're also trying to use the historical examples to understand what ended these periods. Um, and are there dynamics that we can um, harness or leverage to help uh, motivate change now? Um, and so that we don't have to say the reason that we get out of this is because of some crisis or disaster. You mentioned the loss in the book and also in your remarks about the loss of respect for science or confidence in science, but you mentioned GMOs twice, and I'm a little bit into a, a relatively new book. It's either called The Wizard and the Prophet or The Prophet and the Wizard, but it's about, and I'll get these names wrong, Vogt, who was the guy who was considered to be the, the beginner of the environmentalist movement, and Borglund, I think, was the name of the man who uh, is credited with having, in fact, some people say he has done more to save human lives than anyone in history because he was very active in trying to find new ways to get uh, crop production to be much more productive, which has made it possible to expand the population, which is one of the greatest threats that Mr. Vogt would have seen. And they obviously never got on the same page. And the author makes the point that this is a case where not where science is being, is being uh, dismissed. It's really where both these people are scientifically based in what they believe, but there is no cross-communication. And if, mm -hmm. in fact, saving the world might involve either reducing population or reducing standard of living or technology, you might quickly say technology is the best option. But a vote would have said it isn't because it's just going to continue to contribute to the problems. But do you see examples where uh, part of the, the problem and part of the solution may actually not be just the scientists and those who are not respectful of science, but actually two different scientifically driven opinions which are not collaborating and despite the fact that it would seem obvious that we need to think collectively about how to mm -hmm. make the best of where they are. Yeah. yeah, well I think that is one of the major things that we point to in the report is that the, the problem when people when we don't have a shared set of facts, it's difficult to have these conversations. 
um, the conversations need to happen, and it's not just in science. So we see the same thing in, for example, immigration. Um, mm. We, because there are these two very different ways of looking at the world and two separate sets of facts, the debate instead of being about priorities and objectives and um, and weighing those priorities and ranking them and trying to figure out um, how do we achieve these different objectives and help uh, make sure that the rights of many different groups are protected and enhanced. Instead, the debate has to be about what are the facts, uh, because we can't agree on that. So there, there are these areas, the one you point to, the example of immigration, where we have data that we could use to inform this conversation. And that data is increasingly overshadowed by uh, these two, two or more very different interpretations that uh, are unable to agree on a common foundation or a starting point for the discussion. So we're not saying that those debates shouldn't happen or that everybody has to have the same perspective or the same attitudes, but we should be able to agree on a common set of facts. And that should be the starting point then for our discussions about how we um, uh, balance different priorities and different objectives in policy. You know, I have to ask this question. This was not in the notes, so forgive me if I shouldn't do this, but I couldn't help in reading the book, but note how cautious you were about going to the obvious uh, subject of the day on whether truth matters, and that is the president. And I was reminded, I don't know who here might have been at the, when Doris Kearns Goodwin spoke at Chatham uh, not too many months ago, and, and she was talking about her book, which just came out this week, where she did a biography of of Lincoln and both Roosevelt's and uh, and Lyndon Johnson about how in very difficult periods they had leadership attributes which enabled them to to solve the country's problems and move forward. And of course, everybody in the room was just desperate to hear her compare the right Cynthia or compare those four people to to President Trump. And she avoided that pretty carefully. But I thought what was interesting at the end, someone said, "You know, do you think today is worse? Do you think our situation is desperate?" And she said, "You know, with what I know about American history, I would never." never bet against the United States, but she said, if we don't solve the opportunity and income gap, we have no chance to get past this. And that was the one thing she, and the reason, the, the, the one solution she mentioned was that we have to make education more more equitably available and, and, and effective, and we're gonna have to change our attitude about the teaching profession, not just to pay them well, but to really respect how critical they are to the future. But uh, I thought it was kind of interesting to think about, I mean, there is a, Absolutely, a case where truth has uh, slid off the rails a little bit, but uh, but you resisted also. That was the, what I started to ask. Uh, how did you you and your co-author resist the obvious temptation of really having this book be about the uh, more well, this, more than it was about the current political situation? Well, this was a topic that Michael and I were discussing before the election, so it really wasn't triggered by the current administration. Yeah. They, these are trends that have emerged over the past two decades, and we can't point to a specific. Pol- decision, a specific turning point, a specific person, a specific uh, political party as being the one driver of this. It's really a confluence of different factors that have gotten worse over time. So certainly what we see today in, in our political environment is an example of this, but it's not the cause, and it's only one example of many. We point to the, in the report to examples that have occurred throughout the past two decades. Um, you know, so I, I guess I would agree with the... Uh, the assessment that if we don't do something, things are going to get worse. Uh, we should expect it. If, if these are trends, we should expect them to get worse over time. And if we do nothing to respond to them, then it's going to keep getting worse. Um, but I'm also optimistic that having identified the problem, if we study it, if we can collect data to understand what's happening and why it's happening, uh, we can identify leverage and access points where we can 
um, come up with policy responses and other types of um, responses that can be executed from the from the bottom up that can help to um, address some of the challenges that we face. I don't know if it's true on all three of the prior episodes that there was a crisis that kind of led to a, a resolution of progress forward, but do you see this time, is there a need for something to be a, on the level of a national crisis to get people to change behavior? Well, if you look at the past episodes, um, I mean, you see a turning point in the early 1900s after the Spanish-American War that's driven heavily by investigative reporting uh, around the war. People, they want to have good reporting of what's going on in the war. Um, in the 30s, you see two drivers. The first is one of the reasons that the Great Depression was so bad and so long was that at the beginning, uh, economists and policymakers ignored macroeconomic data that would have allowed them to make different decisions that would have ended it sooner. And I think there was a realization uh, that if we don't make policy decisions based on data, then we end up with this kind of outcome. Um, so that's one response, uh, or one uh, trigger. And the other was, again, a war, World War II, that, again, uh, really uh, increased the importance of investigative reporting. Um, in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a crisis, but you have Watergate, which, again, raises the profile invest of investigative journalism um, and causes a real change in the way government the government communicated with the public in an attempt to be much more transparent to rebuild trust after what had been a very... Um, tense and rocky time. So in each of these periods, you do see uh, things come to a head and a realization that um, that facts matter, that data matters when you're dealing with policymaking. Uh, and, and, and so I think um, the goal is to learn from these past episodes. What can we learn from how they got out of it? What changes do we need? What changes do we need in how information is presented and consumed? What changes do we need in education and how we teach people to consume different types of information? Um, and what changes do we need in how uh, the government interacts on every level, the state, um, federal, and local level, how the government interacts with each other and with the public um, to help to rebuild trust in those institutions? I think those are the questions that we should be asking to avoid some kind of um, crisis or unfortunate event. I understand you've been talking about this book across the country. Have you, do you see differences in reaction depending on where you are and what kind of reaction have you seen? Um, sure, there are different reactions, but I guess what's most, what surprised me most is that how many different audiences it resonates with. So I've talked with um, people in healthcare, people in education. I've talked with corporate CEOs as well as people in corporate governance. Um, I've talked with journalists, uh, so I've talked with just a range of different people, and it's interesting how each audience picks up on the piece of the report that uh, is really relevant to them and translates that into uh, actionable things that they can be doing. Uh, and I think that's what's been most interesting to me is the way that it's uh, spanned disciplines, which was really you know the goal of all RAND research is to be interdisciplinary. And certainly our approach here was to be holistic and to think about this problem as a systemic one and not one that has one solution or uh, involves one set of actors, but really to widen the debate and make sure that all the stakeholders, all the people that have a stake in this problem, which is just about everybody, uh, recognize the way that, that they can contribute. I'm sure it's easy with everything going on in the country that people think about this at the national level, but if you... As you go around the country, do people react or give you information about whether in their regional endeavors they see the same kinds of issues, the same changes, or do they see a difference between local endeavor and, and national engagement? So I think that increasingly um, 
obviously the national debate is seen as polarized. Increasingly, the state debate is also seen as pretty polarized in many states. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, the local debate is often less polarized. Um, and part of that is the issues that local governments tend to deal with. Uh, tend to be ones where, um, you know, transportation and things that are more tangible and concrete and immediate, uh, things that we can discuss it and come up with a solution that benefits our small group. Uh, so I think that there is something different about local government. Um, and there certainly are lessons to learn from that about how we can deal with the, um, what happens at the other levels. Um, I think, though, that one of the challenges is that the issues that the local government deals with are fundamentally different than what the uh, state and federal government deals with. And there are issues, big issues, like immigration and healthcare, where the national policy really still matters. Um, but you've worked a lot in the at the local level, so I'd really be interested in hearing your experiences and how you've seen those dynamics play out. You know, it's interesting, because I would have said for most of my life that on the local level, because people have a common opportunity or challenge that um, I deal with people all the time, I have no idea what their politics is, no idea what they think about these issues. Everybody's working together to solve a problem. And there's probably a little bit of a cynical aspect of that, too. If, if you need funding, you go to the whichever government person at whatever level can provide the, the funding that you need. It's not a question of uh, uh, politics. It's a question of how do you how do you get the job done? But I, I do think it's changed. I think the uh, 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 well, opioids is one thing we were just talking about a little bit ago. Uh, in West Virginia, uh, which obviously has its its fair share of the problems, to say the least, and is working on some good solutions, but you, you have a very different approach between those who really want to help the people who are addicted and those who believe they should be punished. And it's kind of fascinating. The mayor of Charleston didn't want to hand out clean needles. He didn't want to use Noxalone. I think I have the word right um, he didn't see why should the taxpayers be paying to help people who are breaking the law. We're funding efforts to provide clean needles and to provide ways to save the lives of these people in hopes that they can be can be saved. And, and to my mind, it's hard to even imagine the contrary opinion, but it's definitely out there, and it has had some effect on Huntington, West Virginia, has been very successful. Charleston, not so much. People now have started to think maybe we have to come with the let's help the, the addicts view and see what we can do because they have families, they have, you know, their failure has rippling effects for sure. But, uh, but it has been interesting to see that difference of opinion. The other one that would be maybe hopefully more familiar to the people in this room is the, the, the whole issue about uh, the gas, the shale gas, and what the opportunity that means to this region. And uh, uh, in two respects, I find that interesting. One is I think most of the people in this room probably have a, may well have a very Oakland-centric view of our future, you know. And I've, I've had a woman that we go to church with come up to me and say, why do we need that shell cracker? I mean, it's only 600 jobs. CMU cranks out 600 jobs every week, you know, this kind of thing. And, and I, you know, I said to her, well, get in the car some Sunday and drive to Weirton or Steubenville or Newcastle. You know, you pick it. But go to a community that had lost its reason to be 50 years ago and think about what the health impacts are of poverty and unemployment and try to balance that. I've, you know, I've tried to talk to industry into trying to maybe project that story. It's not that industry doesn't have health and environmental impacts, but uh, unemployment and poverty do as well, certainly have health impacts. And then go out to these places and, and there they are with a chance to uh, maybe have prosperity for the first time in an awful long time and, and then think about uh, why do we need it? Well, we need it because it's a region. It's not just uh, uh, 
an urban area. But, you know, clearly um, I've had people, friends of mine, colleagues at other foundations come to me and say, how does it feel to be the only foundation person in Pittsburgh that supports the gas industry? <laughs> so, well, and then they smile, but I'm not sure they're kidding. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but I think the uh, uh, it's not an easy issue. It's not as if uh, there's not going to be uh, harm from that, but I mean, I think the I think the public needs to be better informed to try to balance the the pros and cons. But uh, but that's a big part of my life now. So I no longer say, well, when we're all working on a common economic opportunity, we all you know put ideological issues aside and proceed. That's no longer the case at all. It's a, uh, obviously it's a very different world right now. Well, I, I, I mean, I think you bring up a good point is this idea of being Oakland-centric um, because one, one of the things that we've seen with the polarization that exists now is that it has created these pockets of very homogenous people who are all very similar, who have very yeah. similar jobs, very similar education levels, very similar uh, religious affiliations. Uh, they do many activities together. They run into each other all the time. So they have this shared um, sense of community. And so within those small communities, it's very easy to come to agreement because everybody's the same. Um, but then just one community over can look completely different um, and polarized on all these different dimensions. And so it's this bifurcation, uh, this collapsing of many different identities into two very distinct groups. Yep. Um, this That's you know a sorting process almost that's, that occurs both ideologically and geographically uh, is part of the challenge mm -hmm. um, because you end up with um, you know two, these very fragmented society which leads into then the like civic engagement uh, and people's willingness to, to participate in the political process and to be engaged in um, civic institutions yeah I, I'm sure it's the case and and it, um, I mean I feel very privileged to get to work in West Virginia and see a lot of different things just because it does help to Keep your mind open, but it's a, a, no doubt that's a, that's that's part of the issue for sure. Um, I know you're you're talking about the research agenda going forward, uh, but can you describe that? I'd be interested to hear. And how do you hope that will help to solve the problem? So the first report was intended as a framework or agenda setting piece, and the final chapter then lays out a research agenda. This all the things that we think we don't know, uh, and. You know, one of the questions I get asked often is, well, what's the solution? What solutions did you come up with? But even though this feels like an urgent problem and so we want to rush to solutions, it would be a mistake, I think, to get to solutions without actually doing the analysis, collecting the data and doing the analysis that we need to identify the right solutions. And so that's what the research agenda focuses on, is identifying high-priority issues collecting empirical data, analyzing that data, and then using that data to figure out what does this mean and uh, about, about the nature of the problem that we didn't know before and how does that inform our search for solutions. So to give you some examples, you know, we talk about trust um, and declining trust being a problem. Um, and people talk, well, the solution to that is to rebuild trust. Well, how do you rebuild trust? You have to know why people don't trust the institution in the first place. Well, we actually don't know that because there have been no surveys that actually ask people, why don't you trust this institution? And in what context don't you trust this institution? Is it the people? Is it the process? Is it the output? Is it the performance? And each of those suggests a very different set of responses. And so that's one thing that we're doing now is we've used the American Life Panel, which is a panel survey that RAND maintains of 6,000 nationally representative respondents to ask people about the reasons why they do and do not trust institutions and what causes increases and decreases in their level of trust. And so that will allow us to present a much fuller and more complex picture of this idea of institutional trust, and that can inform our search for solutions. 
another study that we're doing is looking at media literacy. Um, there's a lot of energy around media literacy as a potential response or solution to this problem. Uh, and it, it definitely plays a role teaching students to and, and adults to be better at consuming and analyzing information, especially in a digital age. But there's, again, a lack of knowledge about what makes these programs effective and if they're even effective. There's been very few rigorous evaluations to see do they actually improve student outcomes on the measures that we care about. In fact, there isn't even agreement on what the metrics we should be studying are. And so what we're trying to do is get a sense of what programs exist and how do they differ? Uh, what are, what's the format? Who are they aimed at? And then think about what actually makes a good media literacy program by talking to experts and then thinking, so if we wanted to evaluate the programs that exist, what would we need to do? What would be the appropriate metrics? And take a step towards developing this evaluative um, basis on which to form really effective media literacy programs. Um, so those are two examples of the types of things that we're doing. And the, the goal here is really to work towards solutions, but to do it in a RAND way, to collect data and understand what that tells us about the problem, and then use that to get to solutions. So it's slower, but ultimately we're going to end up with solutions that are hopefully more effective. Yeah, we were talking, you and I, before we came in here about the the impact of of technology on and computers and on children, and there's a lot of concern about this. I was saying our daughter, who's a middle school teacher in Lexington, Massachusetts, which is a very high-performing, kind of high-pressure school district. But she said in 15 years she's been teaching, she's seen children lose their ability to follow instructions. If it's a two-part instruction, they kind of go vague on the second part, you know. And the, she said they can't really read the maps around the school about how to get around, you know, they, how do we get to the gym, you know, this kind of thing. But it's, uh, uh, and she's working with uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education is now has people studying this to see if there are actually changes in the composition of the brains of, of young people. But I, do you feel, I mean, maybe this, you know, and, and uh, uh, a lot of people are paying attention to this, whether it's scientifically is legitimate or not, time will tell, but do you see this in what you've researched so far? May it be more than just children that are impacted by the oh, lack of sociability adult. that leads uh, to? I mean, it it's definitely to, everybody. I mean, yeah. we focus on schools because they, they're a captive population. We can yeah. do something to address that. We have a forum in which to provide interventions to try to change the way they think. And that's what, that's what media literacy is. It's not a course that you teach once a, you know, once a week. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of consuming information and, um, kind of an outlook. Um, but adults haven't received this either because social media didn't exist then. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was no, uh, online news for a lot of people. And so it's something that everybody struggles with. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know whether it's changed people's brains because I'm not a neuroscientist, but um, it certainly seems it's it's changed the way we do everything. You know, it's changed the way research is done. It's changed the way we communicate that research. So it's had fundament, a fundamental um, effect on the way we communicate, the way we share information, the way we consume information, and the way yeah. we interpret and understand that information. My next question was going to Go suggest ahead. possible criticism of Rand. I don't mean it that way, though. I'm trying to think how to ask it. But I, I can't resist. I'm cutting you off. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, but you can, you can both answer this. I mean, the last, the last three times the country went through an episode like this and recovered, it probably was not a research-based solution. And I can certainly understand I'm not being cynical at all about the ability of research to help schools do a better job of how do you incorporate what's needed in an already too busy day and all those kinds of things. But how do you foresee when you said we need to do the research before we know how to solve the problem? 
is that reality or is is does there need to be some national endeavor that gets people to pull together around this or is it or is it partly both is that a fair question i just I mean, or is that a researcher's perspective that maybe can be pushed no, back? No, so I, I don't think that research is probably the only answer. And I also don't think that, you know, one or two or three research projects is going to give us the answer. This is a really complex problem that's gotten us, that we've gotten into over several decades, and it's not going to be a quick fix. You know, I don't think it's going to be better. I mean, maybe it will be better in five years, but it's not going to be solved in five years. We yeah. can't go backwards now that we have this technology and we don't, we shouldn't want to. There are really good things about social media and more access to information. So it's about um, understanding how we navigate the space. Uh, the, the place that I see for research is um, can we, can we trigger that, that uh, national endeavor in a way that isn't a crisis? Mm-hmm. Can we mm-hmm. do small things that help get the ball rolling? Um, because there's an element in each of these previous periods that is, you know, top down, that is some kind of crisis or event, but there's also an element that's bottom up. It didn't happen on its own. It happened because, um, journalists were going out there and trying to get the facts. It happened because consumers wanted facts and they started demanding them. So a media company started providing them. Um, it happened because individual people in the government who were elected to these positions understood that things had to change. And so those are things that we can uh, that we can identify um, so interventions or responses or different ways of talking or thinking about um, an issue. And this first report, as much as anything, was intended to spark a debate, to get more people talking about this and to get more people working on this on this issue by providing a way forward, by highlighting some of the areas. We Rand isn't going to do all that whole research agenda. In, in chapter six, unless I'm going to work till I'm like 150. Um, so, you know, we need other people to be involved. And that's what this was intended to do, to yeah. really, um, you know, in, engage a larger community and uh, motivate a discourse and a discussion about this topic using a common framework. So I want to open it up now to all of you to ask questions of Jennifer and Pat. Yes. Hi. Um, my question is, maybe a statement, but there's a difference between saying everybody agrees there's an opioid crisis, but we disagree on how to solve it. But the decay in truth is that some people would choose to ignore the fact that there's an opioid crisis. So I really wanted to hear more about that, that the facts are no longer the facts. And then how do you get the facts to be the facts again? And what needs to happen? I'm also looking at this audience that has more gray hair than average. So <laughs> is this something that we start doing? You mentioned this in school kids, but a lot of the, I've got college age and teenage children. So what do we do to engage them? So when they're getting the news on uh, social media, that they're getting accurate news. So we, the facts are the facts. We can debate whether we agree with them or not, but how do we get the facts to be the facts? Well, you know, the, um, I had a chance recently to meet the woman who is the fire chief of Huntington, West Virginia. It's kind of unusual to have a woman be the fire chief. She was one of Time Magazine's 100 top people of the year or whatever. But um, it was really impressive to hear uh, because she's so humble and yet so dedicated to try to solve this problem. But the mayor called them in, she and two other people, and said, folks, we have no choice. You know, we just have to address this. Huntington had the highest death rate in the country. Uh, everybody talked about the Detroit gangs that were kind of floating. You know, it's, there are three states right there in 
close proximity had made it harder for the police. So there were all kinds of excuses. And, and they may have been legitimate reasons, but I thought it was fascinating. She said the first thing we did was think about all the things we were doing that weren't working. Uh, and, you know, they definitely have engaged the community and they have a mayor who's a very impressive public uh, figure who's able to get people's attention. But uh, at the ground level, really what they did was try to figure out what are we doing that's wrong? And then how do we change that? And uh, she described, I'd love to meet this guy, a, a huge, scary uh, uh, drug addict, recovered drug addict, who she says gets credit for saving 500 lives. And uh, just because he's the first person that the drug addict, when they're arrested, meets, even before they meet a nurse, if he can, if he can get there fast enough, because he, he can actually get people's attention and get them to think about how to change. So, you know, when you try to think about how do these things work, it's not um, uh, some well-thought-out method. It's really people that, that care are in a position where they have to make a difference that are trying to think creatively about how to do it. So... You know, I, whether that would work uh, in larger communities, uh, you know, time will tell. But Pittsburgh is, I think, West Virginia is number one in the country on the rate of opioid addiction per capita. And, and I think Western Pennsylvania is number four. So we certainly have our, our work cut out for us. I, I think that the part of um, what, what uh, Pat is talking about here is um, this idea of trusted messengers. And I think that that can yeah. be a powerful way to yeah. um, make, uh, you know, get, get out the word that the facts are the facts, as you said. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of research on how you get people to change their minds. If people have a false belief, how do you get them to, to change that? Um, the best way is not, believe it or not, to go up to them and say, you're wrong. Um, that's wrong. That, that doesn't work. Um, so instead, you know, you need to think about um, how do you communicate this to them in a way that feels tangible and accessible? And that can mean the language that you use. It can mean who does the communicating. It can be how many times you do the communicating. It can be the examples you give. Um, you know, and in the area of science and research, part of this is, is not just the people receiving that information, but the people doing the communicating. Researchers and scientists aren't always the best um, at, at distilling technical findings into a, um, a simple and accessible uh, way of communicating that information. And so I think that, that that body of research on this idea of how do we, um, how do we change people's minds, how do we get over cognitive biases, that's a really important area to explore, and that's something that we're working on in, our, uh, in, our, in, the, in our, this set of follow-on projects. And as to your point about um, teenagers and college-age students, yeah, I mean, our focus isn't just on young children. It's also on high school, it's on college, and it's also on adults and young people who are now out of school. Um, there are there should be courses in college. This should be a way that college students are, are, are taught to think as well. Um, not necessarily in one course, but kind of spread across all the courses. Uh, so I think that thinking about how we access all these different populations, including um, not just very young um, and um, older, but also this in-between. And actually, that in-between population may be the most important, because they're the ones who are coming of age and beginning to enter the political um, arena. So you know, I do agree with you that that's a really important focal point. Uh, I'm Jim Gilchrist. I teach a course at Carnegie Mellon called Fake News, uh, Truth in the History of Journalism. Uh, it's the second semester I taught it, and we use your text. Uh, so first of all, thank you. Uh, I'd be interested in knowing whether you run into people in other universities or colleges that are using the text uh, for this course. Uh, I guess my observations would be, first of all, it's a very, very helpful introductory framework. 
Uh, I think descriptively it's very good. Uh, but I do think, following on to what you were just saying, uh, going deeper about people's motivation, the whole matter of motivated reasoning is huge. Uh, because we all know that uh, people aren't always interested in the facts. That's that's the issue. Uh, Upton Sinclair said 100 years ago, it's hard to get a man to see something when his salary depends on his not seeing it. We have appeals to resentment. We have all kinds of social psychology and individual psychology issues at work here. So I hope that when you go to volume two, uh, even more decay or root canal or whatever the next uh, thing is going to be called, uh, I hope that you look at those things too because uh, we need to understand this, the powerful motivations for why people don't see the truth. But thank you for the work so far. Yeah, so we're actually doing a survey right now that asks, that we're, that we're trying to understand the roots of these cognitive biases that affect truth decay by asking about things like magical thinking and other types of, of um, bias that play a role in this and trying to understand the extent to which they are associated with some of the phenomena that we see at um, as a part of truth decay. So that will definitely be um, something that we should have out um, hopefully um, next year sometime. As far as other schools using it, I've heard of a couple, um, including some courses that are run for military personnel. Um, but it's like I said before, it's really used in very diverse contexts in some ways that are surprising to me. Yeah. Uh... Wow, you got a great project. We wish you the best of luck. But I think you're overlooking such a, a big picture of why people perceive things differently. You, you mentioned worldviews. Well, people do have different worldviews. Mm -hmm. Is diversity good? Is diversity bad? And the answer for you or the answer for me might be completely different. Mm -hmm. And so those are the things that, that lead us down. And data alone uh, could support one side or could support another. And, and data alone, you know, we've been down so many false paths. Are eggs healthy? Are eggs not healthy? You know, is hormone replacement good for us or is, is it not safe for us? You know, facts change. Data changes over time. So, you know, people have lost faith in it. You know, we have faith that the bankers and financiers were, were going to run our economy good until... They showed us they didn't. And, you know, we had faith in our church leaders until Attorney General came out with a report. You know, it's, it's our whole institutions. Have, have, we, we no longer trust the way we trusted before. But I think there's some good reasons for that. Right, so I agree with you 100%. There are certainly reasons why trust has declined, and there are good reasons for them. And we should be skeptical. We shouldn't trust things on faith. We should look for look deeper. Um, in terms of science, it's very true that there has been lots of conflicting information about what is healthy and what is not healthy. Um, you know, part of this is understanding how scientific knowledge evolves. Um, that as we get better data and better methods for studying that data, uh, we get different interpretations of that data, and that's completely normal. Um, um, I'm not saying that when you read one scientific study, you should believe it because it is science. But if you see 500 studies that show the same thing, that's an area where you can probably, uh, you know, have greater confidence. Um, and so I think it's this balance between being um, skeptical versus being cynical. It's good to be skeptical, but being cynical um, pushes you then away from identifying information that is trustworthy. And uh, to your point about worldviews, I agree 100%. And we, we may never agree, and it's okay for us to have different opinions. 
But we should be able to identify a common set of data that we agree on. And there can be data that supports many different perspectives. But let's get it all out there. Let's agree on what is the data that is pertinent to this question, which are the facts. And it could be five different ways of studying GDP. Great. Let's talk about all five of them and what each one adds to the conversation. That data should be the foundation on which we then have a discussion about who is diversity good for, who does it harm, how can we balance these perspectives so that we uh, overall can achieve um, a, like a greater good for the greatest number of people, right? These issues aren't always zero-sum, and there's usually some kind of common ground. We can't get to that common ground if we're only looking at part of the data or none of the data. First, uh, one thing you said might lead to an inter uh, immediate contradiction. Uh, 500 studies aren't better than one study if they're all paid for by the same people. That's true. And so I we, should qualify by saying 500 diverse studies 500 <laughs> with diverse funders. <laughs> with diverse funders. I would agree with that completely. Uh, again, that's one of the things I, I, I teach my students. Who benefits from this work? Uh, it's amazing how often you can find uh, garbage by saying who benefits from people believing this. Uh, that and, uh, to get back to your point, it may not be scientific, uh, but we have a tendency to have a premature objectification of fact. What would be interesting once in a while would be have somebody come up and say, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Give me two years and maybe I can tell you this, mm -hmm. but I don't know. When was the last time anybody in here heard a pundit say, beats me, <laughs> I have an opinion, <laughs> whatever it is, they have an opinion. Um, but they, the system is not set up to reward I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how to overcome that. Right. So, you know, I agree with you 100% on the funding issue. Um, we have a whole section of the report where we talk about agents um, that contribute to this problem and that make it worse. Um, and those agents include, um, we talk about this issue of funding of science. We talk about the issue of lobbyists. So this is obviously um, a major piece of the problem in the extent to which um, the number of funders and lobbyists active in this area has increased. And as far as the saying, I don't know, I mean, that I think is something that we as scientists scientists and researchers can do right away. Be clear about what we're certain about and what we're not certain about, because that gives what we're certain about a little bit more credibility, because we're willing to be honest. You know, I don't have the answer to that. Um, but if I study it more, uh, maybe I'll have the answer in some number of years, and maybe I won't. Um, so I agree with you. And I think that that's a question that the scientific community is grappling with more generally, and how do we deal with publishing um, you know, non-findings, which are basically you know, not publishable at this point? How do we get that into the research community? So I agree with that point. Did you want to? Well, and this doesn't disabuse any that either of you just said. But Jim, when you were asking your question, I was thinking about economics. And I'm not being cynical about economics, but I think most economists would agree that they never really agree. There is no one set of conclusions. And we've survived all of the crises we've talked about in the history of the country, despite the fact that economists didn't agree on what to recommend. They didn't agree on the reasons why things changed. It may be our capacity to deal with data that's fundamentally at issue and not just the fact, you know, maybe we're retreating into our corners and, and that may be part of it is to get people not to not to understand that this is right and this is wrong, but to understand what you do when there are differences of opinions. How do you deal with that in a way that makes mm -hmm. you an effective citizen 
as opposed to, you know, a, a monkey in the corner just getting ready to duke it out. And I and that has to be yeah, part of media literacy, yeah. is synthesizing many different perspectives yeah, and opinions yeah. into a coherent, uh, like, full opinion or, pers- or yeah. interpretation of an issue. Well, obviously, it's frightening when, when medical science changes its view. I mean, because that can have personal results on us and our families. But we are used to economists not agreeing, and somehow we managed to muddle through. So there may be something to the, the muddling theory of uh, dealing with... Uh, Scientific difference might be a, a way to, and because we have, and, and again, that's the, my thought about the the people in Huntington. The mayor said we've got to do something. They didn't know what to do, but they knew they had to change what they were doing. And let's let's be pragmatic and let's develop. Let's respond to the facts as we go. So, so uh, John Dewey once said that the problems with democracy require more democracy. I would suggest that the problems with our democracy require a more deliberative democracy. And on pages 190 to 199, you make references to that in your book. Uh, Deliberative democracy isn't just people talking, but it's instantiated in many ways by a set of protocols. So you want to create conditions for a diverse group of people to come together. You want to have well-vetted information that they have ahead of time. You want to have a structured conversation with trained moderators. You want to create the possibility for them to generate a question with an expert panel. You want the panel to respond (coughs) as teachers. You want a survey that captures all of that. And, and the good news, frankly, is that, that Pittsburgh does conceive of itself as a center for deliberate democracy. The mayor has endorsed that. Uh, we introduce our budgets uh, through a, a process of deliberative forums. And so there are good, positive things that happen. And one of the side effects of that model is that people actually become engaged with each other and others that they don't usually become engaged with. So you get both better informed opinions and a higher level of civic engagement. So uh, thinking through what was mentioned in your book uh, as uh, something to research further is, I think, an important goal. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you that some sort of institutional change in the way um, the government works would help to address this problem. The challenge is, though, how do we actually motivate such a change? Our, you know, our, our political institutions are intentionally set up to move very slowly and to be very difficult to change. <coughs> Um, so at least at the national level, um, at the, yeah, at the state and local level, I agree hundred percent that those are the types of things that, you know, there should be a deliberative process and it should be more engaging. And it's possible that a lot of issues can be dealt with at the state and local level. Um, and then you're only, uh, you know, you, you reduce the number of things that you're dependent on the federal government for still, there are going to be cases where we need federal policy, where we need one policy that governs the, like how things work across the country. And so, uh, I still think that even if we could get local governments working perfectly, like ideally as we would want them, we'd still have to think about how do we make sure that our federal processes are also uh, effective in um, producing policies that address the major challenges that the country faces. Todd Willen, um I'm the CEO of a pediatric practice, Kids Plus Pediatrics here in Pittsburgh. Um, Eight years ago, we tried to take the lead and uh, tell people, let's leverage our relationship to our families as pediatricians, a trusted source, and get on social media to combat some of the disinformation that was out there. And uh, so we, we did that, and we, we've been leading the charge nationally. And then last year, we created a, a video on uh, the HPV vaccine, and it was quite successful, but it then earned us a global anti-vaccine attack. Um, and uh, um, 10,000 post and 800 strong. And we were the one of the first or second large global, uh, large scale attacks that we've seen. And the reason I bring this up is 
that we're now seeing, and this is our communications director and was my business communications coach here originally, that now um, it's not just overwhelming opinion on both sides, but it's weaponized mm -hmm. terrorism. So that what we're seeing now in other practices, the people we preach to for the last six to eight years to get out there and leverage your relationship with your families, we were attacked not only on Facebook, but then inside the group, they said, let's attack them on Yelp and Google and destroy their practice, which we've seen other practices destroyed around the country doing that. And now even large health systems are brought to their knees because they're like, don't run that. That's too controversial. Run the car seat story or the sunscreen story. The anti-sunscreen people aren't too strong. Um, so, um, so as a result, we, we took your advice here. We, we continue to try to leverage this. We went to the Graduate School of Public Health at Pitt, and we're doing research on this now. Um, but we also feel like we can't wait because there's a vacuum that's forming, and we know who fills that vacuum. So my question is, uh, we're trying to do simultaneous research and trying to leverage our relationship with our families. Any other advice for the urgency? I mean, there's there's 41,000 cases of measles in Europe right now. There's over 20 states in the United States now with measles, a disease we almost eradicated in 2000. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a really tough, tough challenge. How do you get this out in a way that then doesn't invite your being attacked yourself? The first thing I would say, I guess, is like you can't like I wouldn't give up, give up like I would keep fighting. But that isn't like based on research. That's just kind of like, um, you know, my my person like someone attacks me. I'm not going to give up. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think it's maybe thinking about targeted messaging. Like, can you target those messages in ways that um, reach the people that you want to reach without attracting so much attention to the people you don't want to reach? The answer to that is probably not because the people that you don't want to reach are hiding among the people that you are trying to reach. Um, I mean, you know, these the challenge of how we deal with social media is one, like, you know, saying before, like, I don't know yet how we navigate this space. We have this great forum for sharing information. And right now we have basically no rules or guidance or any sort of sense of how we uh make sure that we can separate the good quality information from the less good quality information and how do we um, protect the positive parts of this information space um, and the value that this gives to us without inviting all the negative aspects. And, you know, I don't have an answer for that. That's something that we're thinking about. What are the range of different solutions for it? Um, but, I mean, I think... Um, I think just trying to keep reaching out using different messengers. Like who, who could you delegate to do this on your behalf? Are there other partners that you could identify who could work through schools or other types of, of institutions? Um, you know, I think it's a mistake to think, um, that you can only, you know, provide like bland information because that's sort of where, where they're trying to push you. Um, and it, this is such a vital issue that we can't stop talking about it because some people don't want to hear it. Um, so I guess what I would say is like, yes, we definitely need more research on this. We need to think through uh, the range of different, uh, you know, policy responses. What are the responses at the government level? What are the responses? What can tech companies do to help combat this problem? And how can we work with them to um, incent work with them or incentivize them to make some of the changes that we need, not to limit free speech, but to prevent like malicious attacks or you know weaponize weapon the weaponization of information both from domestic actors and foreign actors um, what can individuals do um, you know what are the who are the different stakeholders and what should they be doing that's a question that we're asking that we have to answer um, and then thinking about who else you can partner with um, how can you get this message out to as many people as possible in kind of the broadest coalition possible 
Um, that's really all I can suggest. Hesitate sometimes to sound like I'm being critical of West Virginia because I love West Virginians, but you know, the, it isn't just weaponized communication that occurs to me. And we've been, for 30 years, the Benham Foundation has been trying to fund a school-based health system because in rural communities, that's the place where kids can get first-level care and get referred to care. We still don't have it in all 55 counties in West Virginia because of anxiety about vaccinations, but also sex education, even though every parent has, they have to sign affirmatively that their child can have sex education at school. The nurses are not permitted to discuss it, and yet people are afraid of it. And to be honest, it's the religious community that's keeping this alive. It's not weaponized communication. It's not social media. It's people are learning in church that they should be afraid of what could happen with a, a school nurse, uh, even though they understand the health benefits that would come from it. So it's a, after all these years, it's almost hard to imagine, but that is, that's part of the issue. Too. But I think that goes back to the yeah. idea of like trusted communication. How yeah. do you communicate with those communities in a way that says like, we're not challenging your religious beliefs here. Yeah. You're free to have the religious beliefs you want. This is a health issue. Yeah. Uh, and it has all these health benefits and in no way impacts your um, religious beliefs yep. um, or your ability to hold on to those convictions. And, you know, someone who doesn't attend church ever is not the right person to deliver that message, but somebody who is already within that community is the right person to deliver that message. Yep. And how do we identify those people and uh, train them to have to communicate that message? Yep. It's hard. So I'd like to offer just a slightly different perspective. Harry uh, Frankfurt is a professor of philosophy emeritus at Princeton University. And he's written a very esoteric book that sheds some light on this topic. And I'll abbreviate the title is on BS. The second word is actually eight letters in the title. But he talks about BS and distinguishes that from lying and prevaricating, etc. And the key point he makes is that when one lies, one knows the difference between what's true and what isn't and makes a choice. And when one use, uses BS, one is completely indifferent to the facts or the truth and says whatever one wants to for whatever reason. So in this issue about truth decay, my question has to do with, if I take my friend here, and th this is an untruth, but if I were to say he's a scurrilous thief and say it regularly and consistently, if I didn't go to jail for slander or something, people might start to begin to believe that. The best example I know of is McCarthyism. But the issue now is we have the same kind of conversations about immigrants, about, well, you name whatever organization, people, individuals, presidential candidates, when one uses repetitive untruth or BS, if you will, how do you counterbalance that? Truth doesn't matter to the people who are saying it. How does one reverse the accusation, the comment, the innuendo? That's really my question here. I mean, so I, you know, I think part of this goes back to uh, what I said previously about it matters who communicates that message and to keep communicating it. Um, I think that once once bad information is out there, it's very difficult to change people's minds. It's also very difficult to retract it. There's been some work that even if you print a retraction and people read that retraction and change their mind and understand that that's false, the like the first information still lingers in their head. So they may be like, oh yeah, I understand that he's not a thief, but um, but in back in the back of your head, you're like, but I don't want to leave my purse there, you know. So it still impacts your your decision making, um, and you know. So so I think that that's that's a real problem. I think um, 
you know, you need to, number one, whenever you, when there's research that suggests that when you change someone's mind, you have to like erase and replace. You can't just take away the, what they believe. You have to replace it with something else. So when you tell, when I find out that he's actually not a thief, you tell me that he's a wonderful person who is generous and um, is the you know kindest person you know or something. And so then that replaces that information in my head. I think saying it multiple times, making sure it's the right person to communicate it, um, spreading it as far as you can. Uh, but I mean, once the first, once the bad information is out, it does damage that you can never undo. And the problem is that false information and information that is sensational and emotional and attracts people's attention spreads faster and further and deeper into social networks than true information does. So it's a real problem and I don't know that we have a perfect solution. Now we we know that there are ways that it can be that the effect can be reduced. We know that it is possible to change some people's minds, but there's some people who you're never going to change their mind. Um, and so I think that's why it's not just about correcting disinformation. It's how do we prevent that disinformation from getting out there in the first place? Or how do we prevent it from at least going viral, right? So social media, the reason it's changed the game is that before you could spread your disinformation to a select group of people, the people who read that newspaper, or the people who heard you, heard you say it on the radio. Now you can spread it to millions and millions of people with the push of a button. So it just magnifies that effect. And so that's why the, the game has changed, and that's why... Being able to identify ways that we can limit the spread of objectively false information, not people's opinions, not people's attitudes, not people's worldview. That is, you know, protected speech and we should have it. But how can we limit the spread of objectively false information? Hi, um, this is bringing up lots of different ideas for me. But one question that I had is, I know that Rand was the pioneer in uh, robust decision making and decision making under uncertainty when you can't get people to agree on on the outcome of something. I'm wondering if RDM is something that could be used for uh, in different areas of uh, of politics to say we may not be able to agree on what the future holds. We may not be able to agree on things, but let's think of different ways of combating the issue. And I'm wondering if that has come into the, the discussion at all with truth, decay, you know, future elements, things like that. Yeah, so we're definitely trying to leverage different disciplines and different ways of thinking about things. So thinking about, you know, what we can learn from robust decision making, what can we learn from um, decision making under uncertainty, what can we learn from behavioral economics that can help uh, change the way people interact with information, um, not just in a policy setting, but in an everyday setting. So I think that one of the, you know, if you look at most disciplines, like some of the biggest breakthroughs are when you take something from another discipline and put it into a new place, thinking about it in a new way. And so I think that there's a lot of potential there. Um, and I, that's one of the reasons why we approach this from a systemic perspective, trying to integrate things. So I definitely think that that's one thing that we will be exploring. It strikes me about the three periods that you mentioned where we had similar uh, conditions and now uh, as a difference between those three periods and now is that um, there was an institutionalized way of having a shared national purpose via the draft and military, which then was expressed in each of those periods with a crisis that ended up in war. Um, we don't have that uh, anymore, that national service requirement. That's an institutionalized form of compelling kind of a shared national purpose. I'm wondering if you're looking at that at all and uh, some of the factors of how this is different now versus 
those previous periods? Um, I mean, so I, I'm not sure that the draft itself um, can can really explain this because we had the draft for a long period of time, but people were only really drafted when there was a crisis. So it's not like it, we were never a country where we had people who, you know, people had to at 18 or, or, or men at 18 had to sign the selective service form. But I would be hesitant to explain everything by um, the draft because things, truth decay or the phenomena that we've seen have gone up and down over this period where we had this institutionalized service. So that can't be the exp- exp- explanation for why things get better because things also got worse when we had that institution. Uh, I think that in these periods where we saw crises, that sometimes triggered a sense of we come together because there is this crisis and we put aside our differences. Um, And so, you know, that could be part of it. Um, But I mean, there's a body of literature that suggests that, you know, in terms of military effectiveness, the draft is not the way to go. So if we're going to think about how can we instill a national identity or a national sense of service, um, I would say that having some kind of civic requirement or increasing the extent to which we use civic participation um, and uh, and civic engagement, not just in a classroom, not just taking a civics class, but actually have a part of high school be you do some kind of civic project for one of your semesters uh, as part of your education. Um, that could be a way to build this sense of community participation and community engagement. So that, I think, would be valuable in this context of how do we rebuild an understanding among young people of what it means to be a member of a democracy and why you need to be informed. But I would separate that need for kind of this sense of um, responsibility or and privilege of living and uh, participating in democracy from the draft itself. Pat and Jennifer, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Please join me in thanking them. Thank you all for coming and participating as well. I believe that Pat and Jennifer can stick around for a bit. So if you didn't get your question answered, please ask them afterwards and enjoy the rest of your evening. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.